Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. That what Christ does for those he redeems is take those who are naked and clothes them. How would you respond to being stripped naked and publicly shamed? I dare suggest that those who love you would grieve deeply for you. In the Old Testament of the Bible, we read of how far into sin Israel had fallen. The depravity of the nation is depicted as if they were publicly naked and it absolutely broke God's heart. So where can you even go from there? How is one to be saved? There is hope, we discover. And as tonight Dr Corbett opens Lamentations, we're again in chapter one, stripped naked, ashamed, and guilty. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to the book of Lamentations, not, as Anastasia called it, the book of Lamingtons. And we're going to pray. Holy Spirit, as we open your word and we look into it, give us the ability to stop, not to rush, just to pause, and to hold up your word like the diamonds that it's described as. And Father, as we take the diamonds of your word and we hold it up to the light of your presence and we just turn around as we look at the different angles of this, I pray, Father, that something of the refracted light of your presence would enter into our soul in a special way today, bringing healing, bringing peace, bringing confidence and bringing a renewed sense of the joy of salvation today. In Jesus' name, amen. I was mindful of uh, Psalm 51, where David prays a prayer after he has fallen. He sinned. And you remember, he sinned with Bathsheba. And, and it's in that, that time there when it's all, everything's coming apart for David. And, and, and he comes to God in prayer. And he prays that prayer where he asks for forgiveness. And then, then he asks if he could please have the joy of salvation, returned to him, restored to him, returned to me, restored to me the joy of salvation. And that's really interesting because it was when, obviously, if he needs it restored, he had lost it. And when you lose your sense of the joy of salvation, you're prone to sin. And not just sin on a little scale, but sin on a, unfortunately, as we see in David's life, on a grand scale. So today I pray that you would have a renewed sense of the joy of salvation. I said to you last time as we were looking at Lamentations that I doubt that any other preacher in this city is preaching on Lamentations. I probably could take a stab that there's not many preachers today in Australia preaching on Lamentations. That, that's not meant to be a brag. That's meant to be a, a question of my sanity, I think, on your part because we, we would, I presume, look at Lamentations and go... <laughs> Oh, blah, 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 let's just go to the next book. And as I said to you, if we can just stop and pause here, I want to show you Christ in Lamentations. I, I'm not trying to put anything into the text that's not there, but I do want to show you that in these few verses that we're going to look at, it depicts Christ. Not because I'm trying to twist it, not because I want to panel beat it into my sermon, but he's actually there. And, it, and it's actually, as we see Christ in Lamentations and as we prepare our hearts for what is now the Holy Week, which has commenced, I hope that you'll see Christ in a fresh light. So this is Lamentations and this is a recent name given to the book because this book 
was originally called How. That was the name that the Hebrews gave it, How. And it comes from the very first word of the very first verse of the book, How. And then when, they, when there was a group of uh, Hebrew scholars that translated this into Greek, these guys formed a thing called the Septuagint, they said, How doesn't really work. And they said, well, it actually is a group of, of lamb laments, and we'll see that in a moment. And, and all but one of the chapters are 22 verses. And it's not often that in English we can take something in the original language and go, that's a verse, that's, a, that's clearly a verse. Because sometimes the verses are artificial. The Bible wasn't written with verse numbers. These were added much later. But in Lamentations, we can. There's no disputing it. And there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And this is crazy clever, what Jeremiah's done here. He's taken the first letter of each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and he commences the verse with that letter. And so we see chapter 3 has much more than 22 verses. And I haven't got the time to explain what he's done there, but it's way clever. It's really clever what he's done. And so in English, it's difficult for us to read and appreciate what Jeremiah's actually done here. But this is what it tells me. Anyone who has the time to write a poem is a very thoughtful, reflective person. Anyone who can write their entire book in poetry is a very intelligent, thoughtful and, shall we say, caring person. Second book of Jeremiah's, although he wrote First and Second Kings, or at least edited the greater portion of it, is written just after this event, which occurs around about chapter 38 in the book of Jeremiah. And what we have been looking at in the last little while, as we've looked at Jeremiah, is that after Jerusalem's destroyed, you remember that the people, the remnant, those that are left, come to him and say, well, what should we do now? And he says, just stay here, just stay here. And whatever you do, he tells them, don't go down to Egypt, which had long been the place of protection and safeguard for people fleeing Israel. And they did exactly what he told them not to do. They went down to Egypt. And so we read in the closing chapters of Jeremiah that he's gone down to Egypt with these remnants and uh, the remnant of the people. And he's now prophesying to the nations around about because Jerusalem's no more. But immediately after this happened, Hebrew tradition is that he went and went to what's called a grotto, which is a cave. And as he wept and wept and wept, hence he's known as the weeping prophet, he wrote this poem, The Lament. Well, what is a lament? A lament is a poem of mourning. It expresses grief. We see King David lamenting the death of Jonathan. We see, we see Jeremiah in um, Second Kings, it's recorded, that, that he lamented the death of, of, um, of Josiah, the King Josiah. And so a lament is something that is a part of Jewish or in particular Hebrew tradition. I said that this is a poem and in some instances the Hebrews rhymed their poems, but not usually. Some things that you may not know about Hebrew poetry, which will help you when you look at your Bible and you can see that, at, that for the most part, it's just you know, justified paragraphs. And then you come to Lamentations and it's all, what's, hang on, why is, all this, why is it indented? 
And it's indented because the translators are trying to show you something, that we have what's called Hebrew poetry being demonstrated, and it's rhythm over rhyme. So you've got da-da, da-da-da, da-da, 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 da-da-da, da-da, da-da. And that's how it'll go. It's a rhythm. There's a rhythm to it. It's, and it's done that way so it's easy to sing and memorise, just like the Psalms. Most of the Psalms are like this as well. This lament, which the Jews would celebrate with a feast, rather, sorry, a fast. I always get those two mixed up. Uh, <laughs> a fast every year to commemorate the fall of Jerusalem. And they would, from memory, recite the, the book of Lamentations and read it on that day of fasting. So it's rhythm over rhyme. It's also what's called parallelism. That's where you've got line A, line B. Um, line A, it could be, um, she is a very large woman, line B, and she is not skinny. That's called negative parallelism. And you'll see that in the Psalms. You'll see statement A, then statement B negates statement A just to make the point. Or it doesn't negate it, it states the opposite of the same thing, you see? Then you've got other types of parallelism. We've got statement A, um, it is a very hot day, it is a stinking hot day. You know, that kind of it parallels those things. Don't quote me on those. They're not Bible verses. I've just given you examples. So parallelism. And the other one is this thing, which is not common in English, but it's this thing called an acrostic. And I've mentioned to you, that's where the poet will take the first letter of the alphabet. So it's done in different ways. In Psalm 119, you'll notice that there's 22 sections in Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. And each of the sections, every part of that section begins with that letter. So in your Bible, as you look at Psalm 119, you'll notice the first section is Aleph, 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 which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so on, all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. So an acrostic was a style of poetry as well. In this section that we're about to look at, we're going to look at, in particular, verses 8 to 13. Uh, I'll refer to down to verse 16. But we're in Lamentations chapter 1, reading from verse 8. And I just need to say, because I'm probably going to create some problems for parents, uh, although the children have gone out, but I want, I want to say that this is definitely not a rated G message because of the content in this text. It, it is... Extremely graphic, and and this will be the first time I've ever used language like this in any sermon I've ever preached. And the reason I'm doing it is not to be provocative, not to be controversial, but because I want to be exegetical. And exegetical means I just want to, you know, like import puts in, export takes out. Exegetical means I just want to get out of the text what's actually there. So if you will allow me the grace to tell it like it is despite our sensitivities to the language that Jeremiah himself uses, we're going to get the most out of the text. This message is titled, Stripped, Naked, Ashamed, Guilty. Because that is how Jerusalem is depicted. And come with me now to verse 8. It says, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy, and I want you to know the Hebrew word there means something in particular, as you will see in a moment. All who honoured her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness 
She herself groans and turns her face away. Notice this. She has sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. You know, Isaiah the prophet uses that word filthy. Your righteousness is as, he says, filthy rags. And what is he thinking when he says filthy rags? Not just the kind of rags that a mechanic ends up with when they've fixed your car. It's the kind of rags that women used for their monthly period, their menstrual discharge. It's a pretty graphic picture. Israel's sin is depicted as the public display of her garments becoming filthy. In other words, she hasn't even used rags. This is just all over her garments, and she's in public. I don't want to labour the point, but I want you to get the point that Jeremiah's making. Women would think of... Women, how would you feel if there was evidence that... How does a bloke say this politely? That there was evidence of... um, The way of women was upon thee. (laughs) To quote quote one of the biblical characters, Rachel. And it was obvious to people, but it was because it was behind you on your garment, you didn't know, and then you found out. How would you... You know how you would feel. You know how you would feel. There would be a sense of shame and embarrassment and humiliation. And Jeremiah is saying that's how Jerusalem was when they were destroyed. This was humiliating. This was shameful. This was embarrassing that this had happened. But he says that's not all that happened. Because while... She's parading in garments that are stained with filth. Her conquerors strip her naked in the public square. It's graphic. It's graphic language, isn't it? It's graphic. Stripped naked, it says. And there she is, groaning, but with nowhere to turn. She turns her face away because of the shame and the guilt she's feeling, the humiliation and the embarrassment, but she's surrounded. Nowhere to run. And Jeremiah says, this is what Jerusalem has just gone through. Jerusalem's sinfulness is depicted as if they were publicly stripped naked, which is a a biblical expression, as we'll see a bit later, and it's used in the New Testament to describe The undoing work or the redemptive work, to use the word undoing in its proper sense. The redemptive work of Christ. That what Christ does for those he redeems is take those who are naked and clothes them. But we'll see that in a moment. They're depicted in their sinfulness and their rebellion to God as someone who is utterly humiliated. Verse 9. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Her Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed, says Jeremiah. And you can, you, if, you, if you smell your, your iPad, you can smell the tears. If you, um, yeah, see, smell the tears. <laughs> you, can, you can see in your Bibles that, that, that this is tear stained. This is Jeremiah describing this and then turning the Lord to go, oh God, I tried, I tried, I tried to stop this. I tried. 
But they wouldn't listen. They just wouldn't listen. And to think that that is humiliation enough. Jeremiah goes on in this verse and, and, and in the next verse to describe then how they're paraded with their, with their filthy skirts, stripped naked and then raped. Raped by their invaders. Raped by those she thought were her lovers. The humiliation of it all. And so she was left, Jeremiah describes in this passage in Lamentations, left betrayed, hurt, shamed, guilty and abandoned. No one to help. None. Completely abandoned. Get those words, please. She was left betrayed, hurt, shamed, guilty and abandoned. And the fact that Jeremiah is grieving so much over what has happened not only tells us what was going on in his heart, it tells us everything about how God felt about this. God had done all he should have or could have done to avert this. And they, in their rebellion and defiance, shook their fists at him and went their way, their own way anyway. And it broke God's heart. Verse 10. Here's the description of it. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. Next verse. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. And here's Jeremiah crying out, Oh Lord, look and see, for I am despised. Despised. And that's a messianic word. And Jeremiah's feeling it. I've asked this question before. Was Jeremiah a successful prophet? Was he successful? I mean, he was prophesying and preaching and proclaiming and pleading with the people to forsake their idolatry, which led to them taking their newborn babies and coming out of Jerusalem and going down on the, the other side of the temple and going down into the valley of Hinnom and where the potter had his furnace to, to glaze and to do all the, the stuff that potters do. And they were taking their babies and they, they said to the potters, we'll, we'll use that to worship Molech and Ashtar and we will take these newborn babies and we'll offer them to the gods of the sun and the moon. And they would throw their newborns into the furnace and Jeremiah pleaded with them, don't do that. Don't do that. You can't keep doing that and expect God's not going to intervene. And he pleaded with them for 40-something years. And they still despised him, he says. Verse 12. It is nothing to you, all you who pass by. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which, is, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. See what Jeremiah's going through? He goes on, From on high he sent fire. Hmm. Into my bones he made it descend. 
He spread a net, which is how they used to hunt in those days. For my feet, he turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. I want you to consider those two verses that we've just looked at. Verses 12 and 13. They are what we call a messianic shadow. A messianic shadow. In other words, this happened to Israel, but ultimately it's what happened to Christ. Look at those two verses, verse 12 and 13. Can you hear Jesus? Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by, look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. You could imagine Christ praying that from the cross. He as much said that when he cited Psalm 22 from the cross, which says that what Israel was going through, what Jerusalem went through in this shaming, humiliation, exposure of their guilt is exactly what Christ went through on the cross. I know that some people think of Easter as when, here's the statement, Jesus died. Two words, Jesus died. Very clinical when you say it quick, isn't it? Jesus died. If you've ever seen the passion of the Christ, I was bewildered. How many people thought, well, that, is just from, that comes from the heart, the sick mind of Mel Gibson, thinking, Mel Gibson hasn't got the half of it. I mean, after all, he depicts Jesus as bleeding. I'm going, you never read Matthew 27? You never read about how 100 soldiers in a centurion squadron would, would take all the possessions of the prisoner if they could knock him out? Before they even crucified him, you never, you, you never seen, you never. Do you know anything about how Romans went about their business? These guys were killing day in, day out. Mel Gibson did not overdramatize this. He recently told Greg Lowry, because now he's making the follow-up movie called The Resurrection, which will be pretty awesome. He said, in response to Greg Lowry's question about the criticism, he said, "Greg, I've." I'm now looking at Scripture and I don't think I actually captured the full essence of Christ's suffering. And when we read this, these messianic prophecies of what Christ would go through, we begin to realise that clinical, short, sharp statement, Jesus died, just doesn't convey it, does it? It's not that he died. I was thinking, you know, I could shock people and say the title of the message is Stripped naked, shamed and guilty. And then I was thinking, I put the two words at the front of that, Jesus was. Because he was, you know. Stripped naked, shamed and he bore our guilt. And don't go and think, well, he was on that cross with his blow-dried, moosed hair flicked back as he was you know, still tasting the latte he had that morning in his mouth. And this was easy. You've got to be kidding me. This guy is described by Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 52 
as having a back that resembled a ploughed field. That's the brutality of the whipping that he went through, apart from the face. And I know that there are people who go, well, when he appeared after his resurrection, they didn't even recognise him. Maybe it was a different guy. I'm totally not surprised that they didn't recognise him. I mean, after all, the Romans pulled chunks of his cheek out, it says. They grabbed his beard and pulled it out. How do you do that without taking a few bit of dermatological uh, residual deposits? How do you do that? And then they smashed him and smashed him and smashed him. At least 100 soldiers did that. And he's on the cross and his eyes would have been mangled. He would have been almost black from the dried blood. His face would have been swollen in ways faces aren't meant to be swollen. And he just would have been, as someone described, he would have looked like a piece of meat on that cross. And he's naked. I know most of the movies have a nice, cute little loincloth. And he wasn't up there like 20 feet. He would have been about two feet off the ground. That was a part of the shaming. Historians tell us that the Romans would crucify people leading up to the gates of Jerusalem. These people were left there rotting and decaying for months and weeks. It was meant to be utterly humiliating as well as painful. And Christ went through it. And that's what... Jeremiah is depicting here in what's called a messianic shadow. And as I said, Isaiah the prophet, he said the same sort of thing. In fact, this is how Isaiah said it in the famous passage that in fact opens up. This verse is the opening scene of the Passion of the Christ and snaps to Mel Gibson, great choice. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. See why the statement, Jesus died, just doesn't do it. You know, the creeds don't say that. The creeds say he suffered and died. And it's easy to think, well, the suffering began on Holy Week. It began with him coming before the chief priests. You know, when it began, his suffering began, it began in Bethlehem. Because Psalm 22 says, and this is the, this is the Messiah speaking, <coughs> praying to his father in his humanity, says, I'm not a man, I'm a worm. That, that's the difference between being the glorified, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent God and becoming one of us. It's the same as us becoming a worm. And I can imagine that would be an extremely uncomfortable place to be. And Isaiah says he was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces he was, here's that messianic word, despised, and we esteemed him not. I mentioned before when I hear people say, oh, the Passion of the Christ, it's Mel Gibson's twisted, violent mind, making it more violent than it actually was. And I think, you are a first-rate dill. You haven't read Matthew 27. And I don't know how you can read Matthew 27 and come away with any other picture of an absolutely tortured, pummeled, beaten, despised saviour, bearing the weight of our sin, our guilt and our shame. 
And that's the point. And if you get this, and even if you acknowledge, even you might be here today and you might know, not know the Saviour, and you might go, well, okay, all right. I grant it, there's some historical evidence to support what you're saying. There's historical evidence that he would have been treated at least like everyone else who was crucified, at least. But he was given special treatment. He didn't get the, 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 the 20 lashes. He, he got 39 lashes and then some. He was beaten beyond where they normally beat people. He was humiliated beyond where they normally humiliate people. Christ bore our sin, our guilt, our shame, the penalty of what, get these words, we deserve. And if you get that, I don't know how you can leave here today without a greater sense of the joy of your salvation, that he would do all that for me. And perhaps you are here, and maybe you came in here today feeling like you're a million miles from God. You're not. You're just one prayer away. A prayer that says, oh God, thank you that Jesus died in my place. Please forgive me of my sin and come into my life and help me to live for you. Amen. You pray a prayer like that and you can know a relationship with God, which is a relationship with peace from this day forward. Israel suffered great shame as a result of their sin. Jesus endured public humiliation and shaming to redeem us. What a powerful message of hope. More from Dr. Corbett in Lamentations next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Stripped Naked, Ashamed and Guilty, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media. PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.